Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance and economics editor, and this is Money Talks. Later in the programme, virtual reality and how the latest technology might drive its mass adoption. VR will depend very heavily on 3D graphics, which is what the gaming industry and gaming developers have been doing for a very long time. And why banks are dropping customers in countries deemed risky. Last year alone, in certain regions like the Caribbean, the number of correspondent relationships fell by around 10% or more. It's a serious problem that shows no signs of abating. But to start, we head to Germany. It seems an enviable economic success story, stable, prosperous, and with unemployment far lower than in other rich countries. But it has its critics, notably, of course, President Donald Trump, who will soon be on his way there for the G20 summit later this week. He's not the only one to chastise Germany for its persistent high trade surpluses, leading to a current account surplus of a staggering 8% of GDP. For Mr Trump, that means Germany is stealing American jobs. To analyse what's happening, I'm joined by our economics editor, John O'Sullivan. Hello, John. Hello. Let, let's start with that surplus. It's, it's incredible. How does Germany manage to keep its exports so competitive? Well, part of the story at the moment is the global economic cycle. So we've seen a pickup since the middle of last year in economies in Asia, in America, and particularly in the Eurozone. And there's been a little bit of business investment starting to creep back in. So Germany, which specialises in durable goods, particularly uh, machinery, plant, luxury cars, has done pretty well out of that, that recovery. And in Europe, there's actually a bit more domestic demand, domestic meaning within the Eurozone itself. Last year, uh, Europe overtook America as the world's leading car buyer. And, and of course, that's also benefited Germany. So from a cyclical position, Germany's in a very good spot. But there's also a, a sort of longer-term structural reason why, why Germany is so heavily export-led and runs these current account surpluses. There's a long history of pay restraint in the German economy. It's sort of hardwired into the sort of mindset of trade unions, but also companies, that if we let wages get out of control, we'll lose competitiveness, we'll lose market share to China or, or whoever. And that focus has meant that you've got a super competitive real exchange rate in Germany. But the downside is you've actually got relatively low consumption share of GDP. So con consumer spending is about 54% of GDP compared to something like 70% in America or Britain. So Germany doesn't absorb a lot of imports, but it certainly churns out all the exports. And that imbalance gives you the, the enormous trade surpluses that you referred to. You mentioned the real exchange rate. And of course, it's, it's hard to accuse Germany of currency manipulation when it no longer has its own currency. But, but surely the, the euro must play, also play quite a big role in all of this. It plays a role in the size of the, the recent surpluses in as much as that 
Germany, already competitive, has become super competitive with a relatively cheap euro. But if you go back over German history, go back to the 50s, 60s and 70s and 80s, Germany also ran current account surpluses, not the size they're doing now, but fairly sizable ones in those decades. And in the 70s in particular, you saw a very big rise in the Deutschmark. And yet that didn't seem to hurt German competitiveness in, any, in a damaging way. The history suggests that Germany always finds a way, whether through pay restraint or productivity gains, to keep its real exchange rates competitive. So right now the euro is helpful, but I think even without a sort of weak euro, Germany would still be doing pretty well. One way, presumably, of satisfying its critics, one easy way, would be for the country as a whole to give itself a a massive pay rise to, to break that tradition of pay restraint. Is that on the cards? Well, it's the way that China's enormous current account surplus was was dealt with. You didn't see a movement on the exchange rate. The renminbi was roughly tracking the dollar for for a lot of the the last decade or so. But what you did see is a surge of wage growth, which undermined China's competitiveness. And you saw its surplus. It still, of course, runs a surplus, but its surplus diminished by a large degree. Now, can you expect the same thing in Germany? Well, the economic fundamentals suggest you should expect it. Unemployment is below 4%, as you mentioned. The working age population is shrinking, house prices are going up, so uh, workers are looking at increasing housing costs. So all the sort of fundamentals are there for a big wage rise. Against that, though, is the almost institutional barriers against going nuts on wages. So even last year, you saw very modest wage growth, people slightly worried about the state of the, the global economy in the early part of last year, at least, before it started to really pick up. So there's sort of quite a lot of institutional, almost psychological or sociological barriers to Germany giving itself a big pay rise. So I don't think we we should hold our breath for it. And how seriously do German officials take all the foreign criticism? Because it's not just Donald Trump, of course. It comes from within the Eurozone itself. It's an old story. I mean, I, I was leafing back through an old edition of The Economist in 1989 and saw a leader... Uh, related to the fact that US Treasury was complaining about Germany's trade surpluses. So this is not a a new set of complaints. The way it's being made is much more aggressive and is rather less sophisticated in terms of thinking about the solutions to it. But it's an old, old story. And I think there's a danger that really Germany and its critics have been talking at cross-purposes for so long that the message just simply doesn't get through. German officials always say, point me to the economic distortion that gives you this. Wages are a bargain between private sector unions and private sector companies. The government doesn't intervene. So it's an outcome that doesn't have a policy distortion in there. And that's generally been the response. But I think the trouble is, is that the sort of institutional framework it has that biases it towards sort of low wages and a low consumption share is sort of so hardwired now that it's actually very, very difficult to change. John O'Sullivan, economics editor, thank you very much. Next, virtual reality. When Facebook bought Oculus, a VR startup, for $2 billion in 2014, it sent interest in the technology skyrocketing. The hype around virtual reality peaked last year with the release of Oculus Rift and HTC Vive, two high end headsets. But despite all the promises that 2016 would be the year of VR, Many of us may not even have noticed it. Leo Mirani, The Economist's news editor, joins us now, having looked into the world of VR at the world's biggest gaming convention in Los Angeles. Gaming, I suppose, is basically what it's about. That must be the main application for virtual reality. So gaming will be the first application for virtual reality for several reasons. 
So the HTC Vive and the Oculus Rift require high-end computers, $2,000 computers with their excellent graphical processing units or graphics processing units. So gamers already have these things. Gamers are also uh, tend to be technologically quite savvy, so they're willing to put up with all the fiddly setup that lay computer users may not be willing to put up with. And most importantly, they're willing to spend money on this stuff. So that's one reason why gaming is where it starts. The other is a more industry reason, which is that the gaming industry already has a lot of the expertise required for VR. Unlike everything we've seen before, VR will depend very heavily on uh, 3D graphics, which is what game, uh, what the gaming industry and gaming developers have been doing for a very long time. So if 2016 was a disappointment for the VR industry, not living up to the hype, is, is 2017 proving different? I wouldn't go quite as far as proving different. I think what's happened is that the industry is sort of is relatively pleased that the hype has died down. It allows them to get on with the business of solving a lot of the nitty-gritty problems. A lot of these will be solved relatively quickly. Things like input devices. At the moment, they're a little bit clunky and unintuitive. But there's several startups and, and in fact, older companies that are working on alternatives. One makes a little sensor device that can follow your hand movements everywhere. Another one makes a much cheaper version of that, which just uses your phone's camera lens to track your hands. Other people are experimenting with gloves and things like that. That's one problem. Another problem is fragmentation within the industry. But various big companies have come together and joined a consortium under the aegis of the Kronos Group, which is a, a sort of industry standards body, a non-profit, to come up with standards. So that makes developing easier for everyone. A big problem, actually, at the moment includes what the industry calls a chicken and egg problem, where there isn't enough content because there aren't enough people with headsets and not enough people are buying headsets because there isn't enough content. That is also starting to be solved partly because the, the really big games developers, they take you know, more than a year to develop a good game. And that pipeline started a while back and now some of the games are coming to fruition. So all of these things are being slowly solved. What about the world beyond gaming? Is, is virtual reality taking off in other spheres as well? It is both in, in business and in consumer applications. I'll come to business in a second, but the consumer applications, I think, are quite fun. So immediately after gaming, or actually in parallel with gaming, what we have is various forms of entertainment. One early application will be viewing sports in virtual reality, or, or at the very least, choosing tickets online, where you can you can go to a website and see what exactly your view for a certain sports event or a concert, for example, might look like from any given seat. But beyond that, there's more interesting stuff, such as a new form of entertainment that's neither gaming nor movies, which, for want of a better word, we can call passive entertainment, um, which is a, a more sort of immersive entertainment. There's a company based in Santa Monica that is starting a sort of VR multiplex later this year, which will sell ten between sort of 10 and 15-minute experiences for about 15 or $20. Um, I tried out a demo, and it, it really was quite something. I think the thing to mention here, both in terms of gaming, in terms of entertainment, and VR generally, is what makes VR so special compared to any other form of entertainment? Why is the entire tech industry so convinced it's the next big thing? And the answer to that is a feeling called presence, which essentially translates to this feeling of actually being there and experiencing something rather than watching or viewing or reading something. And it's very, very powerful. Let's say you're standing on a cliff edge in VR. You actually get the sense that you better step back or you're crossing a rickety bridge. You get the sense that you might fall down, even though you're actually on solid ground in someone's living room. 
I mean, that's what makes things like this immersive entertainment multiplex that's opening this year seem quite attractive to the people who are investing in it. Leo Mirani, The Economist News Editor, thank you very much. Thank you, Simon. If you have any thoughts or opinions on what you hear on Money Talks, such as on Mr. Trump and his chastisement of Germany, or on the future of virtual reality, then do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. And finally, de-risking. An ugly term describing the process whereby banks drop customers in countries deemed to pose a high risk of embroiling them in accusations of money laundering, sanctions evasion or the financing of terrorism. This week, the Financial Stability Board, a group of international policymakers, produced a report on the process. I'm joined now by The Economist's investigative editor, Matthew Valencia. I think we ought to clarify our terms first. What exactly is de-risking? Well, de-risking involves banks pulling away from a a variety of different clients. Banks have faced increasing fines over the past five to ten years. And as a result, they've become very fearful of of, um, risk, uh, of dealing with um, any clients that are seen as being high risk from uh, from a financial crime perspective, um, particularly money laundering, but um, others, as I said. They've pulled back, pulled back wholesale from entire regions, from entire, entire t- uh, groups of clients. Which parts of the world are particularly affected? The most affected parts are uh, emerging markets and poor countries, uh, Latin America, Africa, Eastern Europe, uh, the Caribbean and Pacific states. They're the most affected, but... Um, it, it really is a global phenomenon. And uh, what we've seen is banks pulling away from other banks as correspondent banks. Correspondent banking involves a large, usually a Western bank, that uh, is providing services for smaller banks, lesser banks in uh, more far-flung places to help them clear uh, dollar or euro transactions through large financial centres. And we've increasingly seen these large Western banks pull away from these smaller banks because of nervousness over, over these risks. So this must be causing some genuine hardship. It is. Uh, it's causing hardship for banks in those regions, which obviously is having a knock-on effect. It's even causing hardship for, uh, in some countries like Belize and some others, for central banks. The central banks of those countries can't get correspondent banking relationships or are losing correspondent banks. They're finding it, um, it difficult to, to operate as well. And on top of that, we're seeing a very big impact on non-banking clients such as NGOs, charities and money transfer firms, uh, in particular remittance companies, uh, companies that um, deal with um, uh, remittance payments um, into poor countries. And in its report this week, is it possible to sum up what the Financial Stability Board's assessment is of progress made in this? What they came out with this week was, uh, first of all, a progress report looking at uh, the work that's been done so far, um, pledging to do more, uh, including setting up a task force to look at remittance companies. That's an area at the moment that they're very concerned about. And also a data report, a survey of hundreds of banks, uh, also using payments data from SWIFT, the um, interbank payments company, looking at what's actually happening with correspondent banking. The findings are quite depressing because what they found was that uh, the problem has continued to get worse. Last year alone, in certain regions like the Caribbean, uh, the number of correspondent relationships fell by around 10% or more. So it's a serious problem that shows no signs of abating. 
So in, in attempting to solve one problem of, of malfeasance by, by Western banks in a way or their connivance in malfeasance, they've created what may even be a worse one. That's right. Uh, the pendulum has essentially swung too far the other way. So, um, you know, the crackdown was merited. Banks were getting very lax with their money laundering controls. But what we saw was regulators issuing sweeping guidance saying things like, Money transfer companies are very risky. Uh, charities are very risky. You should be very wary of dealing with them. And you know, banks responded to that in a, in a rational way, which was to, uh, to run a mile. And um, now the regulators realise they've gone a bit too far, but it's, it's quite difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. My thanks to The Economist's investigative editor, Matthew Valencia. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist, or visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.